Well, good morning. I halfway thought about making Anthony preach this sermon today after what happened last week. Make him preach from my notes, see how that goes. Um, so it's good to see you this morning. And uh, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8 today. And I want to give you a quick glance at what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks so you, you're not surprised. And uh, first of all, how many of you guys went to prom last night? Raise your hand. Were there any proms? Did you already ask that question? Well, I wasn't in the room when you'd asked that. Sorry. Am I allowed to ask? I preached your sermon last week, man. Be quiet. Um, shots fired. Yep. So anyway, forget that question then since you already covered that. Uh, but let me give you a, a glimpse of the next couple of weeks we have coming up. So next Sunday, um, I'll be getting back from being out of town. So I have... Uh, Mrs. Ron said I'll be preaching next Sunday, May 1st, and she told me she's going to do a talk that's based on a chapter in a book that she's writing. So you don't want to miss that, I'm sure, so make sure you're here next week to hear that. That'll be like just a, a standalone message. And then uh, for the first time ever in 12 years, um, we, I'm canceling high school stuff on Mother's Day, May 8th. Um, yes, you can clap for that because um, none of you guys show up. None of you guys show up anyway on Mother's Day, which is fine. Um, I'm not going to waste a sermon on 30 people, so um, that's why. Why the hate? Because why the hate? I, you really angry about that? You guys don't care. Uh, so, yeah, last year we had 30 people show up, and I'm like, yeah. Do I feel like working hard for 30 people? I mean, seriously. Um, so I'm going to cancel it on Mother's Day. And then, um, and then May 15th, May 22nd, May 29th, we're going to do like a three-week series. We're going to call it Honest Doubt. We're going to do a series on doubt for three weeks um, in the, in, toward the end of May. And so, but today we are in Romans chapter 8. Today is our last uh, sermon in Romans um, for this series. And give you a quick review of the whole series. Romans 1 to 5, we have said, is what God has done for us through the gospel. Romans 6 to 8 is what God will do in us through the gospel. We've talked about how Romans 1 to 5 is like this high, lofty theological language Paul uses. Romans 6 to 8 is he's starting to land the plane a little bit at least, and he is showing a little more how it, it works out in our lives. These big idea theological truths are worked out in Romans 6 through 8. And I've been doing a lot of praying through this series, because I've been praying for spiritual breakthroughs to happen in you guys. Whether you're not a Christian yet, or whether you are a Christian, I've been praying fervently that God would do some serious spiritual work in us. And I, I pray for every series that we do, but I've especially been praying for this series because um, this is a section of Scripture that like changed my life. Even once I was a Christian, it changed my life to help me understand what the gospel really is, how God's grace really fuels our growth, how the Spirit really fuels our growth as Christians. So this is what I've been praying for um, for the last several months. And I'm hoping that God does some serious work and some serious change as we um, move into Romans chapter 8 once again today. I want to review quickly the last two weeks as well. Uh, Romans chapter 7 was all about this war that takes place inside us as Christians. Now, popular media will just display this war as like an angel on your shoulder 
a devil on the other shoulder, and you're like this neutral pawn in between, right? This is not the biblical picture. We would say that Romans 7 talks about the inner being, how there's this war between your inner being and your outer members. And this is what the war looks like, even as a Christian, your war against sin. And then Romans 8, 1 to 17, um, this was not Anthony's title, I just kind of le- left it as a title that I wanted to use. So I'm calling it, you know, fighting sin with the spirit was kind of what last week was about. Um, as you have this war inside of you, how do you fight that battle where there's a spirit that dwells inside of you? And this is how you do battle with sin, is through the power of the spirit that dwells within you. And so I had Anthony's notes last week. And you guys, I had to remove all of the Dixie Chicks references in that sermon. Like, it was a ton of that in there, and it was a lot of hard work. Um, But if you look back at Romans chapter 8, verses 12 to 13, it uses the phrase, put to death the deeds of the body. What that means is put sin to death. So we've talked about how God declares us dead to sin, meaning that positionally, We are no longer under the power and the reign of sin. That is true. But Romans 8 talks about how because of your new position in Christ, you put sin to death as well. The way this plays out in life, this means that you declare war on sin. This deals with behaviors and attitudes. You pull out all the stops on sin. You don't compromise on sin. The old school theologians called this mortification. This is an old John Owen expression. Mortification means you put sin to death. This means you don't say things like, you know, yeah, yeah, I know it's wrong, but it's not that big of a deal. Or I know I need to stop, but I'll just sort of gradually stop doing what I'm doing. Or, you know, I I can stop when I want to. I can keep it under control. Like, it's not really overpowering me. I've still got it. I'm good. So this, this means that you, you declare all-out war on sin in your life as a Christian. This means that you don't just avoid the things that are black and white sin, but you avoid the things that lead to it. That you approach life with wisdom. You approach life with a mindset that I don't want to even be in a situation where I know it's going to be really, really, really tempting for me. Think about relationships. This is huge for Relationships. You avoid the things that lead to sin. And I've always, if a student ever comes to me and asks me, Dave, I'm struggling with this kind of sin. How do I fight this battle of sin? I always tell students this. I say, look, you've got, there is an internal war and there's an external war. As a pastor, I never tell you, okay, just stop. Just stop doing what you're doing. That's the external battle. That's partly true. But there's also an internal war that needs to be waged as well. The external war is changed behavior. The internal war is changed attitudes. And this has to happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Tim Keller says this. He says, sin can only grow in the soil of self-pity and a feeling of oddness. This is why attitudes are so important. You and I will never fight the battle of sin well if you don't understand the internal attitudes have to be addressed. And if you don't repent of those internal attitudes, this idea that, you know, God owes me, this is why I'm dating that guy who's not a believer because God owes me a boyfriend or God owes me a girlfriend. 
you know, no one's asked me out in two years, so I'm just going to take matters into my own hands. And so we don't go against God's word because we're not owed anything. God is not indebted to us. We are not owed anything by God. So how does God change these attitudes inside of us? And this is where the gospel comes in, because when you and I realize that God does not owe you a thing, it sets you free. It sets you free. So Tim Keller goes on to say, Paul is saying that sin can only be cut off at the root if we expose ourselves constantly to the unimaginable love of Christ for us. And this is a huge, huge idea. I want you to pay attention to this quote. This is a huge idea. This is huge for us. Because how many of us try to change just out of sheer will? Okay, now that I'm a Christian, or I'm thinking about becoming a Christian, but I guess I've got to change some stuff in my life, and so I'll stop doing this and start doing this and stop doing this and start doing this. And what we fail to realize is that if we're going to change, it has to be fueled by this overwhelming truth that Jesus Christ loves you unconditionally. This is what will energize and awaken and enliven your faith and your walk with Jesus. You are changed by his love. You are changed by his love for you. And so this is how one of the aspects of how we change. And this is the concept that I want us to focus on this morning. I want, you, I want us to focus this morning on this concept of, of how much Jesus Christ loves you. I know as a pastor, I actually had a person a few months ago say to me, this is very convicting to me, this person said, yeah, you know, we're just, we're kind of struggling here at TBC. And I said, so this is actually an adult, not a, not a, not a student, an adult told me this. And I said, really, what's happening? Like, I'm, I'm preaching up there. I'm like, hey, you know, evaluate me, evaluate us. Like, how are, how are we doing? And this person said, I don't feel like we talk about, like, the love of God enough at this church. And I went, man, I feel like we just talk about obedience, obedience, obedience. And I was like, well, do you feel like that's how? And they're like, yeah, I'd include you in that too, Dave. I'm like, that's convicting. And I had to self-evaluate and go, man, like, I don't want to miss that. That's a huge element of the Christian faith. It is the element of the Christian faith. And God forbid, I do not want to stand on the stage on Sundays and just beat into your heads like, obey, 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 and miss out on the idea that it's got to be fueled by the love that Christ has for you. You and I are changed by his love for us. This should be the, the fuel that, that makes you want to obey. This has to be the foundation of it. And so look with me in verse, uh, at verse 18. It says, for I can, chapter 8, verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So we ended last week talking about suffering. And so we pick it up again here in verse 18. We said last week that many Christians think that Jesus suffered so we don't have to. We said that the Christian life is about joining Jesus in suffering, 
Now, you don't go seeking after it on your own. It'll, it'll find you if you're living out your faith. But many of us say things like, I want to be like Jesus. But we forget that Jesus had scars. And if you're going to be like Jesus, your life is going to have some scars. Your life is going to have some suffering. And this is included in the Christian life. And when Paul says suffering, what does he mean by it? So in verse 18, he refers to suffering. These people are suffering because of their faith. Very specifically, Paul is suffering for his faith. Now, when you and I think of suffering, we often think of other kinds of suffering. We often think of random suffering. So how many of you guys were here last Sunday in the outback? All right. So let me just detail for those who weren't here, like, Last Sunday was the craziest Sunday of my entire time at TBC. It was. First of all, Anthony had to go to work, emergency, so he's like, Dave, you're preaching my notes. And I'm like, what? And so I go get his notes off the computer. I print them off, and I'm like, you know, trying to, um, you know, uh, I mean, it was very, very good stuff he had detailed for you guys. So I'm trying to, like, figure out how I'm going to say it because we, we talk a little bit differently and stuff, and I don't like the Dixie Chicks and all that. And so, um, so I'm trying to figure all that stuff out. And then uh, I have an hour to do it. I get up here, and then, of course, the storm hits, and we lose power. We lose projectors. We lose sound. Um, the, 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 the laser lights start going crazy in the room. I mean, it was like everything was just working against us. And then I think I said, all we need now is a traffic accident. Our day is complete. And then Seth Chateau went out in the parking lot, and he kind of backed into someone, a little fender bender. And so I, I'm sorry I jinxed you, Seth. Where is Seth? I'm sorry I jinxed you. I mean, it's my fault. You can send me the bill. Send me the bill. So, but last week was what I call random suffering. It just, stuff, stuff just happens in life. But Paul is referring to a different kind of suffering. This is suffering for the faith. Nothing that happened last week happened because of my faith or because I'm a Christian. This was not persecution. This was not suffering for my faith. And so no matter what kind of suffering you're encountering, Paul, in this verse, I think, is saying this statement, future glory will always eclipse present suffering. Future glory is always going to eclipse present suffering, whether it's suffering for your faith or whether it's random suffering like last week. Let's go into your first three questions at your table. Let's go ahead and discuss questions one to three. All right, guys, let's look at verse 22. Looking at verse 22. We'll pick up in verse 22. It says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So Paul is using a very vivid image here. He used the image of childbirth. Now, we've had two kids. My wife and I have had two kids. And, well, really, she's had two kids. I didn't do anything. And, uh, but, but right now, Paul, 
is saying that all through history, all through history, all of creation has been in the middle of childbirth. Like, let this, this is a very grotesque, vivid image. Like, like that all of creation is like in the middle of childbirth, and the baby is stuck. Okay? So he says, for we know the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. So since the beginning of creation, that all of the world, all the creation, all the created order is stuck in this painful process of childbirth. Now, my wife's had two kids, and um, we had to do what's called a C-section. You guys know what that is, I'm sure. So she is, we're trying to have the baby, and, and then uh, Landon stops progressing, and so the doctor comes in and says, has a look, look on his face, a look that says, yeah, it's C-section time. And uh, he says, yeah, we're going to do a C-section. He stopped progressing, and that means cutting up, open the stomach, and they got to pull that baby out of there. And they go into an operating room, and the doctor is like, do you want to come in and watch? And I'm like, no. But because I love her, I will. And, guys, I can't handle blood. If I see blood, I'm, gonna, I'm like, do you want to have a unsanitary operating room? I don't think so. So um, I walk in literally like, okay, isn't there like a curtain I can get behind where I'm just like talking to my wife and talking her through it? Because she's still awake during this whole process. And they're like, yeah, we can put you behind the curtain. I'm like, well, what about when I go in the room? I don't want to see anything like, like blood and stuff. He's like, okay. And at this point he's like, man, you're such a wuss. And uh, so I literally had like a notebook and I'm like walking in like this. Where's the curtain? Show me the curtain. <laughs> and I get behind the curtain and I'm like, okay, it's going to be okay, baby. It's going to be okay. And uh, so she has two C-sections, right? And this is a painful process. Now, whether a woman has a baby naturally or through a C-section, there almost isn't a woman in the world who after childbirth wouldn't tell you it's worth it. You know how we know that? Because they do it again. If men had babies, there'd be no more babies, right? There, there, it'd like be the end of the human race. I mean, God looked at Adam and Eve, and he's like, yeah, I better make her have the babies. Yeah. So men are wimps. Like, we can't handle pain. So the women have the babies, and there's not a female that wouldn't tell you after childbirth that it wasn't worth it because they do it again. And some do it again and again and again. They have lots of kids. Now, Paul is saying that all of creation is stuck in this seeming endless moment of childbirth. And yes, while it's painful, yes, there's suffering, but there is a future glory coming. There's going to be a future glory. And when the future glory comes, you're going to look back and say it was all worth it. It was all worth the pain and suffering. There's a future glory coming. So you might say it this way. Right now, the world is giving birth to a new version of itself. Right now... Things aren't great. Right now, they're in the moment of childbirth, but the earth is giving birth to a new version of itself. And it's not just the world out there this affects. It actually affects us as believers as well. Even though we're believers, we have the Spirit. We still groan inwardly according to this passage. And this is why Paul introduces this concept called hope. Here's how we define hope. Hope is looking forward with confident expectation. 
And Paul says in this passage that hope that is seen is not actually hope. So the good news about hope is is that you can have it in spite of your circumstances. My wife is a counselor, and she counsels people in all kinds of different issues. She also counsels me pretty well as well. And she's a counselor, and her primary job, do you know the primary job of a counselor is to give people hope? You know, people always think, like, you know, what is a counselor? I'm always asking the question, like, if somebody comes in and has this kind of problem, and they come and see you, like, every week for over a year, like, what do you say, like, over and over? And she's like, you know, I just, I keep, we keep talking, we keep talking. And her primary job as a counselor is to give people hope. Do you know that the Holy Spirit in the Bible is referred to as the great comforter, the great counselor? Do you know that his job is to give you hope? And this is a huge, huge element of the Christian faith. The essence of hope is that you can have it in spite of your circumstances. And so my prayer for many of you, I know many of you go through all kinds of suffering, whether it's random suffering, whether it is suffering for your faith. Whatever suffering you're encountering right now in your life, my hope and prayer, as you look at Romans 8, is that you can have hope in the midst of your suffering. That's the nature of hope, is that you have it in spite of what you see around you. This is what hope is. And there's going to come a day when you can say this quote, this next quote, where all our best days lie ahead of us, and all our painful days will lie behind us. There's going to come a day where that is true. Look down at um, verse 26. It says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. What a powerful verse that is. Did you catch what Paul just said there? We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Do you ever feel like you don't know what to pray for? Ever feel like you don't know what words to use? When you pray, um, on Friday nights we go to a small group. My wife and I go to a small group, and it's it's really funny because I'm a pastor. But every time the small group leader says, "Hey, how can we pray for you all?" my mind goes blank. I literally just feel like I start reaching for, uh, "I got this thing next Saturday." I can't even think of what it is right now, but just pray. You know, I start making up stuff almost because I'm like, "What? How can they pray for us? How can they pray for us?" My wife will ask me um, at night, hey, how can I pray for you right now? And I'm like, uh, probably the same thing as last night and night before that and night before that. But we, we don't know what to pray for. And so do you understand the power of this verse? Because when you and I don't know what to pray for and we don't have words to say, this is normal for us to feel this way. This verse shows us that the Spirit is interceding for you when you don't know what to pray for. How, how does this change your view of who God is? I know some of you guys, in your doubts as a Christian, you ask questions like, I don't know if God's listening to me. This verse says, he's not only listening to you, 
but he is actually praying for you. He's not only listening, he actually is praying on your behalf. In fact, this verse says, he is praying for things for you that you know nothing about. Things that are too deep for words. Like, think of all the things that you and I tend to pray for and think about and focus on. We look at things like, you know, school and relationships and relationship drama and grades and sports. And this verse says, he's praying for us about things that are too deep for words. Can you imagine seeing the list that the Holy Spirit is keeping for you? The list of things he is bringing before the Father in intercessory prayer as he goes to the Father on your behalf and things that are too deep for words, things that you can't even comprehend, things that the Holy Spirit wants to see accomplished in your heart, in your soul, in your mind, in your life. And he is bringing these things to the Father on your behalf. And this does not mean that you and I stop praying. It, the, the response here should not be, okay, I mean, the Holy Spirit's praying for me. I didn't realize that, so I'm going to clock out. No, this means that you keep praying. You, you pray with this new reality in mind that he's praying for you. Maybe your first prayer should be thanking him for that. <laughs> we should start there. Maybe we start there. Look down with me at verse 28. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. In order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Verse 28 is one of the most abused verses in the whole Bible. It says, and we know God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This is how this verse has been used in the past. God works all my circumstances to bring about better circumstances. You may have heard it. So I, so I might use this uh, verse in this way. So a girl might say something like, you know, I was, um, I was dating this like loser guy and we broke up, and yeah, it was painful, but it's okay because now I have this awesome boyfriend. Like God uses your bad circumstances to bring about good circumstances. Now, I'm not implying that God doesn't care about your circumstances, but this verse is not about your boyfriend. This is not about your girlfriend or boyfriend. This does not mean God doesn't care about those things, but that's not the point of this verse. The point of this verse is that God uses all my circumstances to make me more like Jesus. This is how God uses your bad and your good circumstances. And the way we know this is verse 29. Verse 29 tells us to be conformed to the image of his son. This is how God is at work in our circumstances. So God has this way of taking all the suffering, all the pain, all the agony of our lives even our own sin, and he turns it for our good some way, somehow. I'll be clear, though, that sin is not good. Sin is never good. We should never call sin good. 
but somehow God works it all for good. So an example, many, many years ago at a different church, there was this girl in our youth group. Her name was Christy. Really sweet girl. She was dating this guy. Um, and uh, they, they're dating for a while, and then she ends up getting pregnant. She's like a senior in high school at this point. She gets pregnant. She has the baby. And what I loved about this couple was when this happened, they didn't run from the church. They actually stayed. Do you know how hard it is for a young girl who's an 18-year-old girl to come in the doors every Sunday as her belly gets bigger and bigger and bigger? And our students received her. Our students loved her. There was no judgment cast her way. But this girl kept on coming to our church, and I love the fact that our church, our group, was the kind of place where a girl could struggle with that, and then she can walk in the doors and still feel like, you know what, it's okay, I can keep coming here. I love when students run to the church in the midst of those kinds of situations and not run away from church. This girl ran to the church. And once she had the baby, and a few months later after the baby was born, we had this night of like story sharing where she got up in front of the group and many kids were sharing part of their stories. And she got in front of the group and she said this phrase, and I understand why she said it, but I disagree with it. She said the phrase, you know, I know what I did was wrong, like way back when, but um, I don't regret it because now I have this wonderful, awesome baby. And I understand why she said that, because that's the nature of that situation, right? You do have this joy of having this new child, but you can't call sin good. We can never call sin good. We can never say that, yeah, I have no regrets because this is what I had. I get what she's saying, but this is not, that's not what this verse means. That's not what this verse means. This verse does not mean sin is actually a good thing. I would tell you that it's not that God uses sin. It's not that God, um, we don't call sin good, but God works good in spite of our sin. Does this make sense? God works good in spite of our sin. But we never call sin good. We never say that about sin. So I want to give you an analogy of this is true of sin is never good. It, it also means that we can never, we never want to call suffering good. We never look at suffering. So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I'm, I'm diagnosed with cancer, we never say to that person, oh, that's great. We don't do that because sin, suffering, cancer is evil. Cancer is wicked. Cancer is a result of the fall. We don't ever call suffering good. We don't ever call sin good. But I want to give you a picture of what, how I think God brings about good in the midst of these kinds of things. How many of you guys have ever seen the Grand Canyon? Anyone been to the Grand Canyon? So like a handful of you guys have been to the Grand Canyon. So um, it's beautiful. You look at that and you go, wow, I've never seen it in person, but it's beautiful, right? All the colors, like just, it's, it's amazing to look at that. Um, I'd say probably more of you guys have seen the Rocky Mountains. You've seen the Rocky Mountains, right? Colorado. Um, I have seen those many times. But think of all the scenes in our world that we look at and, and we take pictures of these things and we go, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But I want you to go back in time. I'm, not, I'm no geologist. I don't know how these things form all the time. But we do know that the way the Grand Canyon was formed 
had to be a violent process. That the Grand Canyon had to, I don't know if it happened like during the biblical flood or how it, I don't have no idea how it happened, but, um, but there had to be some serious violence when the canyon was formed with some water and a flood possibly. Um, it could be over time, I don't know, but over time, that river or something just carved those rocks and created that beauty. And then when it comes to mountains, when it comes to mountains like this, this is beautiful, but do you know how these things form? These things form from some serious trauma and violence that take place with tectonic plates. And as those things move and, and shift and buckle and things begin to shoot skyward, and this is how we get beautiful scenes like the Rocky Mountains. There is some serious, the earth is undergoing some serious trauma and some serious suffering just to make those kinds of pictures for us. And the funny thing about it is we look at those things years later and go, beautiful. Look at that. It's beautiful. We call it beautiful. We take tourist trips to go see them because they're so beautiful. And I want you to understand this idea because there's going to be a day when I think we can look back on the suffering, the pain, the trauma that we've gone through in our lives, the suffering, and we can look back and we can look at the picture and we can say, you know what? It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Again, the suffering, the sin itself is not beautiful. But what God is doing in the midst of our lives, one day you'll look back at those things and say, wow, I see what you're doing. It's beautiful. What God was doing in me was amazing. And I get it now. I understand it now. And so as that river is carving through those rocks and chiseling those things and causing trauma and pain and suffering to the earth, in the same way, God is doing the same thing in your life, and it's a painful process. And you're becoming, as verse 29 says, conform to the sun. Conform to the image of the sun. This is what it means to grow. Suffering is not good. Sin is not good. But what God does with it is good. And one day you'll look back and say, beautiful. What God did was amazing. Look at verse 31. I want you to focus. I'm not going to spend a ton of time on verses 31 and beyond. I want you to just focus. I'm going to let these, if you're on your phone, get off your phone. If you're not paying attention, just tune in for a moment and look at verse 31 to 39 with me today. Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Verse 37. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present or things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. If you're ever having a bad day, read that passage over and over and over to yourself. So I want to just give you some encouragement this morning. If, if you're someone who feels that God is against you, he is for you. If you feel that God's holding out on you, he didn't withhold his own son from you. I mean, Jesus Christ is standing with his nail-scarred hands before the Father interceding on your behalf. How dare we say, God, you're holding out on me. I'm taking life into my own hands because I don't trust you. He is standing before the Father, interceding on your behalf. He did not withhold his own son from you. What makes you think he's holding out on you? If you're living in accusation and shame because of sin, Jesus is the one who justifies you. If you feel you're under this weight of condemnation, he died for you. He died for you. If you feel that God's not listening to you, he's actually praying for you. If you feel that sin is a war that you're losing, he says we are more than conquerors through him, Jesus Christ. If you feel like he doesn't love you, nothing can separate you from his love. So I want this passage, this ending part of Romans 8, just to kind of wash over your soul this morning, understanding that you and I are changed by the love that Christ has for you. This kind of love is life-changing. It should be life-changing. This is not about obeying the rules. It's not about obeying out of just sheer, sheer effort and obedience. This is life-changing stuff. This is you being changed by the love that Jesus Christ has for you. And as we close out this series, I've been praying for spiritual breakthrough to happen all over this youth group. That whether you are a not a believer yet, whether you're a skeptic, whether you're a doubter, that you would begin to understand this following Christ is not about following rules. It's about following a person who deeply loves you and cares for you. And this is the essence of why we obey. And my hope, if you're not a believer yet, would be that you've come to a place where you realize, you know what, I want to follow him. I want to be in a relationship with Christ. And if that is where you stand this morning, I'm going to encourage you to do something. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 says that we're saved by belief and faith. If you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, his work for you on the cross, and you believe in the resurrection, then Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. Confession with the mouth and praying a little prayer is not the thing that saves you. Belief and faith is what saves. But if you truly have belief and faith, then yes, you will confess it to him through prayer. You will confess it to him to your friends. You will confess it to him to other unbelievers. So my prayer for you this morning, if you're not a believer, would be that you'd become a believer, 
putting your faith and your trust in the king of the universe, Jesus Christ. I'm not going to have a time where you come down front and, and pray that. I, I want you to just think about that. And if that's where you stand this morning, we've got a baptism service in two weeks. We thought it was going to rain today, so we canceled it. And I think in God's providence, we've got two more weeks. And if you're someone who's not a believer yet and you decide, you know what, I believe this stuff. I want to put my faith and trust in Christ. And I want to get baptized to show that to, all, to the world and to my friends. If that's where you stand, I want you to come and talk to me either today or sometime this week. Talk to one of your leaders. We can get you baptized May 15th here at TBC. And if you're someone who's a believer, my hope is that Romans has been an exposure to the gospel unlike you've ever seen before, that you've truly seen the grace at work at the cross. You truly see how much Jesus loves you, how much he cares for you. And if, if you're living your Christian life out of some joyless existence, that all that would change, that you would really truly see what the gospel's about, what following Christ is about, and this would be the breakthrough that we've been praying for over and over again for so many of you. God, we just thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for Romans. We thank you for someone like Paul who was miraculously changed. Your spirit changed him, set him free from his own legalism, his own self-righteousness. On that road to Damascus, you changed him. And now he's the one who's writing letters to the church and and changing the world for Christ. We pray, God, that, that, the, that the Christians in this room would also have this newfound joy in their obedience as they follow you. We pray for anyone in this room that doesn't know you yet, Father. We pray, Lord, that there'd be a breakthrough that happens in their life where they realize, yes, Christ is who I want. I realize how much he loves me, how much he cares for me, how much he wants for me. And they would be led to the cross. They'd be led by your grace to the cross, knowing their sin was paid for at the cross. We pray that for so many of our students in this room and also the many students in our city, Father, that don't yet know you. We pray this in your name. Amen. You guys have some more questions? Go ahead and discuss your last few questions.